As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Our Father in heaven, this is the word of God. We open it so casually, sometimes so easily, and somehow we forget what's between our fingers. May we never forget what's between our fingers as we open this book. It's the very grace of God. And so I pray now that, Holy Spirit, you would work in such a way that as we listen to this word read, as we think about it together, you would flood us with enabling grace. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to 1 Peter in chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. I just want to read the very end of this chapter, verses 12 through 14. 1 Peter chapter 5, please. This is the word of the Lord. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now we're coming now to the end of this letter. We've taken it up for some time now. We haven't gone through every little uh, passage like I normally do as we worked our way through the spring and then... Uh, uh, a bit of the summer, and now um, we'll begin something uh, new next uh, week to take us through uh, the semester. But but um, been working our way through this epistle that the Apostle Peter wrote. He'd been with Jesus, obviously a disciple of Jesus, and uh, he's one in which the Holy Spirit has worked in his mind, in his experiences, in his understanding, in his heart, in such a way that he was able to write exactly what God wanted written, that he would write in such a way that what we would have is infallible, that is, it's true, can't err. It's the very truth of God. And so he wrote it, he says we can depend upon it, we depend upon it uh, for uh, really our, our life, life and godliness, as he would put in his in his second letter. And so at the end, we would expect various kinds of appreciations and greetings. And that's what he does. And so he says thanks to Sylvanus or Silas for helping him with the letter. We don't know exactly how he helped with the letter, whether he was just the scribe and wrote it down or whether he delivered it or how much they conferred about it while Peter was writing. But he gives him thanks and he says he's a faithful brother. And then and then he um, he brings greetings. He brings greetings from other Christians. He says these who've been likewise chosen. And he gives them the handle of, of that they're, how's he put it? He says, see who is in Babylon. And they would understand Babylon. It was the place of exile in the Old Testament. And he's referred to them as exiles here. Uh, and uh, so they're in the world, but not of it, as ancient Israel was to be in Babylon, but not of it, you see. And so they, they get that sort of reference. Rome, by the New Testament time, was often thought of or referred to as Babylon. So perhaps he's there. But they get it. They understand uh, what he's what he's saying to them. And he sends them greetings from his son, not his natural son, but no doubt his son in the faith, Mark, who likely to have written the gospel that we have by his name, that he was informed by uh, Peter, influenced by Peter. Uh, and so he says, well, you know him. He brings greetings as well. And then he says, well, while I'm greeting. You should greet one another. And he says, greet one another with a with a kiss. Uh, this kiss of love, and in those days, and in that culture, even still the, today and other places, that kissing one another is quite a, a common greeting 
even. And so uh, wherever that's appropriate, it could still be inappropriate among Christians as a warm greeting or a handshake or a hug. Or if you're in middle school, a wet willy, um, whatever. They still do that. Whatever, whatever is appropriate in that context. It says, I really like you. Uh, you know, we're brothers and sisters together. Uh, he says, so greet, uh, greet one another as well. But what I want to think about this morning is this expression that's really a summary expression, really a purpose statement, I suppose you could even say, for Peter's letter. Notice he puts it like this. He says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, he knows these people. He knows He's called them exiles. We know how that feels. He says, you're in it, but not of it. And then he says, you're going through trials. We know how that feels because there are trials that are common to human beings, whether they're griefs that we experience because of losses and loneliness, whether it's whether it's the hardships of life that are physical, relational, economic, uh, environmental. We know the hardships of life. We know the difficulties of living in a war, a world where there's war. Where there's political unrest and all of that. They would know that. We know that. We understand all of that. We feel vulnerable in the midst. There are trials that we go through that they're going through. And so he says in the midst of of, of thinking of understanding yourself as an exile, feeling like that and, and knowing the trials of life and then layered on that for them. There's this persecution that they're experiencing and will experience just because of their faith. Some of us know that uh, many throughout the world even today know that throughout history. And, and so we resonate with with them and he says now in the midst of all that stand firm don't waver and we know what he means by that don't waver in your faith continue to persevere continue to believe continue to obey continue to follow after the lord continue to do that which he calls you to do as a believer as a follower of jesus and so 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 he says stand firm now what you're to stand firm in is it right stand firm in it and so the question is, what's the it? <laughs> and he said, well, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and, and uh, declaring to you the true grace of God. So he says, I want you to stand in the true grace of God. Now, all, when he says that, you, you get the sense that he just didn't say to stand in the grace of God. He said to stand in the true grace of God. So you get the sense, yeah, we are exiles. There are those who understand the grace of God differently than, than Peter understands it. And they lay it out differently. And they said, this is the grace of God. And Peter says, no, 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 no. What I've written to you is the true grace of God. You can really rely upon this. This is true grace. And it tells us something about how Peter understood his writings. It wasn't an arrogant statement. It was just simply a statement of fact. I've written to you to help you. I've written you to you that the only thing that can help you, which is the true grace of God, stand firm in this grace, this grace that comes by way of what I've written to you. Stand firm in what I've written. Stand firm in the true grace of God. If you don't take what I've written, you won't receive grace. If you don't receive grace, you won't stand. And writing to a, a people that, that get it, that get about the difficulties of life, that understand it, that have experienced it, they're, 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 they, they realize this is all they have to cling to. It's the true grace of God, so they'll cling to it. Now, the question is, 
What's he mean by that? What's he mean by the true grace of God? And how would they receive it? How would they appropriate it in the context of their own lives? And and why then is it necessary? Why do they need this grace that presumably comes by way of this letter that Peter writes? Now, when the Bible talks about grace, now, it's, it's, it's one of those great and rich and varied words. But there are two aspects of grace that are important for us this morning. One is foundational, that is, it's the one from which all the other nuances and understandings of grace come. And then the second is one that's very personal to what Peter's talking about here. Now, the first that's foundational is the, sort of the definition that I gave you at the offering time, or no, the confession time this morning, when I said that we can define grace as God's favor. Now, we think of someone's favor, we think of someone's goodness to us. You know, if you want favor from someone else, if you want a favor from someone else, you're wanting them to, to do something for you that's good, that's helpful, right? So it's their goodness, their kindness to you. We think of God's favor. We're thinking of his goodness, his kindness, his love, his accepting, his welcoming of us. It's God's favor to sinners. Now, when you put those together, God's favor and sinners together, you realize how surprising the grace of God really is. Because when we use the word sinners, we're using it to mean those who've rebelled against God. Those who said, God, I don't want you. God, I don't need you. Uh, God, get away from me. And if you don't, I'm going to run. And if, and if you try to run after me, I'm going to fight you tooth and nail. That's the sense of being a sinner. We, we know about that sin. We see it in the Garden of Eden. When Eve and Adam turned against God, didn't believe him, didn't trust him with their own way. But we know it, right? In our own lives, our own hearts, we get it, we understand that. And of course, when we talk about sinners, we're not talking about them, right? It's not those sinners, those people who are talking about us. I'm talking about me. We we understand that. This isn't a judgmental thing. Grace is God's favorite to sinners, people like us, who deserve the opposite of his favor. Right? Because you see, the sin brings with it guilt, and this guilt brings with it righteous judgment and That's what sinners deserve. Grace means we don't get that. Rather than judgment, he welcomes us. Rather than condemnation, he cures us. He brings us, if you will, to himself. He forgives us. Rather than hell, we get heaven. Rather than rejection, we get acceptance. And that, you see, is grace. It's a gift that comes to us. We get the opposite of what we deserve. We're, 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 we're surprised by that. And, 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 and the thing about sin is that it not only makes us guilty before God, but it corrupts us as well. 
See, when sin entered the race, not only was there guilt, but there was what we call corruption. It polluted our souls so that God would say very early on in, uh, of human beings in Genesis chapter six, that the thoughts and inclinations of their heart were evil continuously. That's what sin does to us. Or Jeremiah would say the heart is deceitful among all things. Who can cure it? The answer is nobody other than God. But who can cure it? Because it, it's now deceitful. It lies to us. It tells us that which is false is true. That which is bad is good. I mean, that's what, that's what a lying heart does. We can't trust it, you see. But Jesus would put it like this. He said, men love darkness rather than light. How sad is that? How scary is that? Being a human being and having the very Son of God saying, this is the heart of human beings, that they love darkness rather than light. The apostle would put in what we read this morning from Ephesians 2, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. It kills us. It separates us from God. So, so there's the thing, you see, not only are we under this guilt that brings judgment, but we can't do anything about it. Because there's a certain sense of enslavement to sin. It, it binds us, you see, in itself. What grace does is that grace, the grace of God, comes and it's God's favor to, be, to bring forgiveness and freedom from that sin. I see, we call it unmerited favor because we don't deserve it. I mean, we didn't do anything to deserve it. It's, it's a gift from him. He does it for us. And, and in fact, Peter writes to them, uh, uh, like this in, in, in chapter 1 and verse 1, he refers to them as the elect exiles. Now, again, elect exiles, what does that mean? It means that God has chosen you. And you say, of course, that must be the way that it is because, because of my sin, I would never choose him. I mean, how could I ever be reconciled to him other than this electing grace, this grace that comes and says, you don't deserve this. You don't even want this, but I'm going to I'm going to come after you. I'm going to seek you this seeking grace what the old poet called the Holy Spirit is the hound of heaven to come after us when we're running from him, you see. And that's that's the case of it really in our lives. The scripture says no one seeks God. He seeks us. This initiating, electing, seeking, finding grace, you see. We don't deserve it, but he comes to us. In fact, Peter would say this, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's caused us. He did it. We didn't cause it. He did it. And again, this illustration, this image, this metaphor of birth it tells us that it was his work, not ours. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus and he says, you must be born again, born from above. Of course, Nicodemus would know that he would have nothing to do with that work. The one who's been born had nothing to do with his conception. You know that. Biology, get it? No? You know that, we know that. The, the one birthed didn't do anything other than find himself herself alive. So that's the image here. And we read that, we go, wow, that's grace. It's completely a work of God. I had 
nothing to do with that at all. I didn't deserve it. And yet he sought me and he bought me and he worked in me in such a way that I would receive it. And believe it, we see the, the work of this grace uh, Luke did as he observed and did research on the, uh, on the early church. It's Acts chapter uh, 18 and verse uh, 27. Uh, Luke is writing a passage about uh, some of the early church leaders, a guy named Apollos, another guy, another a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. And, um, and so he writes this and he said, when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Through grace they had believed. It was the grace of God that came upon them, unmerited favor, to enable them to believe. And that's what was observed in these early Christians. When they saw grace, they saw faith. Enable them to believe. And, and we say, wow, that's grace. So grace, in the first instance, foundationally, is God's unmerited favor, kindness, goodness, accepting, welcoming to us, to sinners who deserve the opposite. But there's another aspect of grace, and this is the one I think that in some sense Peter's really pointing to here. Not that he's excluding the first, but he's certainly including this one. For you see, grace isn't only this, this unmerited favor, but grace also comes to us as the power of God that transforms our lives and enables us to follow after him. It isn't that we come into this thing by God's grace and then we're on our own. His grace remains and his grace continues to work. And the working of his grace is his power. And the reason that it's called grace, this power, is because this grace comes to us in our weakness. It isn't something that we muster up. It isn't our strength. It's his. It's our weakness and thus his strength that he gives to us. We don't deserve it. We can't muster it. We can't make it. It's still a gift from him. The strength not only to believe, but the strength to persevere and the strength to obey and the strength to serve. Notice this. In the passage I read earlier from 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, I hope you realize that when I'm reading these passages throughout the liturgy, that... Uh, you kind of think about that. You should be thinking, how's he going to use that? Right? Because I am. Um, this passage, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's laying out the gospel, what he received. But then he says this at the very end, verse 10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Sounds a little Popeye-ish there. Uh, by the grace of God, uh, I am what I am. And he says, look at me. This is who I am. I'm the apostle. And you know it's the grace of God because I just told you I was a persecutor of the church. You know that. I had no intention at all, not only of not being an apostle, but I had no intention of following Jesus, of endorsing anything about him. I wanted to, to stamp out this, this Christianity. So here I stand. How did I get here? How did I get to be a believer in Jesus? How did I get to be an apostle of Jesus Christ? 
Well, it's by grace. I didn't deserve it. I didn't merit it. I didn't want it. It came upon me. The Lord worked in me that I would believe. And so, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But then notice what he says. And his grace toward me was not in vain. That is to say, it really worked. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it wasn't I, but the grace of God that is with me. In other words, he says, listen, this grace came to me to save me, but, but it also comes to me to strengthen and empower and enable me. It, the work that you see I'm doing, it's the grace of God that enables me to do that. Paul could say, how do you think I can stand up and continue to believe and continue to persevere and continue to go from town to town when I know that wherever I'm going, it's very likely that they're going to throw stones at me, that they're going to imprison me, that they're going to beat me, or they're going to run me out of town? How do you think I continue on in the midst of this when, when I know I might not eat for days, I might not sleep for days, uh, I might be left for dead after, after a preaching mission uh, here? Uh, how do you think... Uh, I'm able to survive. Do you think it's because I'm strong enough for that? Do you think that it's because, uh, you know, I'm prepared for this? Do you think I'm trained for this? Do you think I... No, he says. What strengthens me, what works in me, is the grace of God. That's what empowers me. And so you see, grace saves, yes, but utterly. It saves to bring us to faith. It's free, gift of God. I don't deserve it. But then in my weakness, grace comes. To make me strong. I depend not upon my own strength, but upon the very strength that God supplies. Paul would know it would come in weakness. In 2 Corinthians, in chapter 12, uh, he writes this of himself. He writes, verse 7. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, Paul says, I mean, you know the story. Paul says, listen, I, I have this thorn in the flesh that's been given to me. And we don't know what that thorn in the flesh was. We don't know if it was physical or emotional or from, you know, persecutors from the outside who, who, who hunted him down. Whatever that thorn in the flesh was, we, we simply don't know. But it existed in Paul, and it hindered him, at least so he thought, from doing ministry. So he called it a messenger from Satan. Anytime something hinders him from proclaiming the gospel, Paul attributes that to Satan, it seems. So a messenger from Satan to buffet me. Well, so he prayed like we all would, I would, pray, make this go away, God. And God said, no. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is, protect, is perfected, brought to completion, is perfected, in your weakness. And if you can notice in that statement, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Two parallel sort of sentences. So, the grace that's sufficient is power and weakness, sufficient for his weakness. 
my grace and my power are synonymous as well. I mean, they go together. So we sing, my grace is my power. Grace is the power that comes to you in the context of your weakness. That's why Paul said, well then, I'll boast in my weakness. This is great. And he says, I I get it now. I realize that 14 years ago, I had this great vision. I could have gotten puffed up. And and so I've been praying three times at least about this thing. God said, no. And his grace comes in the midst of my weakness so that I can continue to bear up. And what this thorn does for me then, God, God transforms that thorn into an asset because this thorn reminds me of my pride. It weakens me so that I'm more trusting of God. Isn't it amazing that human beings need to be reminded of their weakness? I mean, you think we'd get that just by watching the weather reports. I mean, the weather could do us in, right? Uh, Or watching the news, the wars can do us in. Or walking through the hospital, sickness can do us in, right? Or walking through a nursing home. Alzheimer's can do a sin. Old age can do a sin. By simply reading the obituaries, death happens. I mean, you would think it wouldn't take much to convince us of our weakness. But it does. We, because of sin, we, 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 we think we can handle this by and large. Notice how God taught this in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy and uh, chapter 8. Verse 1, Moses again um, writes to them and he says to them or speaks to them. David writes it. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, God wanted to make sure they knew something. He wanted to make sure that they could do without bread, but they couldn't do without his word of grace. They needed to rely upon the fact that he said he'd feed them, even when there was no bread. That would sustain them more than if there was bread and no promise of God. Because he's going to go on to tell them in just some verses later. He says, here's what's going to happen if you forget this lesson. You're going to get into the land and you're going to be prosperous. And you're going to say to yourself, my strength and my wisdom have provided all of this. And once you get there, you'll die. Because you'll stop living dependent upon the word of grace. So he said, I took you here so I did put into your mind something. So that you would understand through the course of, of my taking you through the wilderness all these years and feeding you with manna is that bread's no big deal. We can make that happen. The danger is that you stop believing 
my word. So it is true that the difficulties of life can come. And I don't know why I can't, you know, you can give me a difficulty and I can't give you the exact reason. But I can tell you this, that when difficulties come into our lives, are used by God in such a way to again reveal to us our weakness. And you might think, why didn't you have to do that again? I think I know my weakness. I, I don't know. It's his deal. Right? I don't, I don't design your life much as I'd like to. Trust me. Uh, I don't design your life. He does. And so, uh, uh, but I at least know that. I know it about my own life. When difficulties come, whether I think I need it or not, it's a reminder of my own weakness. Now, the joy that comes from that is to realize that his power is perfected in weakness. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Why? Because when I'm weak, I am hopeless and helpless. And I must then turn to him. And he says, oh, when you do that, then you receive my grace. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Now, how then does this word come? How do, we, how do we appropriate, if you will, this word? We appropriate this word by way of this grace. I'm sorry, we appropriate this grace by the word of God. It's a means of grace. In the workings of God, somehow, some way, the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to transform and to strengthen us. It's our meat and drink, if you will. It's our barbells. It's everything. And this word of God is that which the Holy Spirit uses to empower and to strengthen us. We know that it's that word that brings us to faith. Peter writes about that in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says this, this word of God, this living word of God that's implanted in you. It brings us to faith, you see. We've been born again by this new and living word. But also it strengthens us when this word comes to us. So much so that Moses would end his discourse with them with these words. Deuteronomy 32, verse 46. He says, take to heart all these words by which I'm warning you today, that you may command them to your children. Don't ever forget that. You may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it's no empty word for you, but your very life. Man does not live by bread alone. He's not strengthened and nourished and empowered by bread alone. Physically, yes, we need it. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He says, you need to know this word. You need to know my promises. This is the very word of God to you. This is the very word of, 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 of grace to you. The scripture says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Not hearing it, our faith lingers and lacks. So he said, you need this word. This word comes, this, this grace comes to us by way of the word of God. And so Peter lays this out for them. He says, I've exhorted and declared to you briefly the true grace of God. Stand in it. So he says, you need to stand in what I've written. 
You need to make sure you understand life this way. You need to make sure you meditate upon what I've written to you. Because as you do that, and as you trust it, and as you believe it, and as it reveals your weakness, and you trust it for your strength, then what you'll see is that God will, in fact, be at work in you to strengthen you and to help you. This is your life. So he says to them this. He says, never forget that the reason... That you are a believer in Jesus, that you've been reconciled to God, that your sins have been forgiven, is because of what God has done. You're an elect exile. You're in the world, not of it. And the reason you're not of it is because God has called you to be his. And if you... If that makes you have goosebumps, and if that's surprising to you, and if that's mysterious to you, and you go, wow, then you get it. Because basically, you have no, I mean, what other reason is there for you to be a believer and someone else not? You know this. And, and so when you hear these words, it, it gives us a buzz, and we don't really know where to go with it, other than the fact it's true. And we sit in his presence, and we say, okay. And he says, so, so don't, don't ever forget that. This is my work in you. You've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit, which means you've been set apart by the Holy Spirit for this blessing. You've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, which means that you've been cleansed of your sin. All that is my work in your life. That sense of being sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. David praised, purge me with his and I shall be clean. He's cleansing, to be clean of this guilt and this sin and all of that. And so he says, that's, that's true. And, and then he goes on to say, because you see, you need to realize that you've been, you've been, that, that, that he caused you to be born again into this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus uh, from the dead. This is a work of God. He's caused that. He's done that. Don't forget that. And, and you have this living hope. Jesus, as long as he's alive, he lives to save you. And so he's our living hope. He rose from the dead. And here's what he's doing. He's, he's holding for you and me. He's holding for us an inheritance. And it's in heaven. And it can't be destroyed. It can't perish or spoil or fade. Nothing can, can, can happen to it. It's guarded for us. It's there. Don't ever think it's lost. It's there for you as a believer in Jesus. And so hang on to that. Don't let anybody else talk you out of that. No matter what the persecutors say, no matter the trouble is, no matter what it may seem like, never abandon this because, because all that's really precious is being held and it'll be yours. It's guarded by faith and you say, oh, no, if it's my faith that has to guard it, then I'm in trouble. And the thing is, no, God's guarding it. It's going to be guarded through faith, which means he's going to guard your faith. He'll guard your faith. If, if that's what's necessary for you to get it, uh, and it's going to be safe and secure, and it is self, safe and secure, then he's going to guard your faith. He's going to enable you to continue to believe through all of this. So trust, trust him and trust him alone. And, and, and Peter says, listen, even though you don't see God, even though you don't see him, you love him. Something in there isn't there. That you love him. And he says, ah, know that this means that you're obtaining the salvation of your souls. So he declares that to them. And then he says, all right, let me exhort you. Now put your hope completely, fully on the grace that's going to be revealed when Jesus returns. Put your hope there on nothing else. Don't waver. Don't let, don't trust, don't hope in anything else other than this grace 
this wonderful gift that comes to us through Jesus. That's our hope. And since that's our hope, then be holy as he's holy. Live in reverent fear, trusting him and trusting him alone, you see. But don't do this alone. Do this together. You need to love each other because you've been born again to love each other. So make sure you're in this together. And then he says, well, let me now, let me declare something else to you. You know what's happening? What's happening is that we're being built up to be a spiritual temple. The very presence of God among us. To be building up with living stones, one upon another, to be this, to be this holy temple in the Lord. And we're to be a holy priesthood, which means we're to make intercession for ourselves and for one another. We're to know the scripture and we're to take it to the world. He says we're to be the very dwelling place of God. And, and our purpose of this is that we may declare the excellencies of this very one God who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. At one point we didn't know mercy, but now we do. And we're to take that and declare, don't ever forget that. That's the purpose of your life. No matter what else is going on, you're to declare this truth, the greatness, the excellencies of God. Now you realize, of course, that you live in the world, not of it. And so as you relate to human institutions, be submissive. God has ordained them, he says, to protect us and to help us. Oh, there may be times when we can't, but, but by and large, he says, submit to them, even when it's difficult, difficult. Even if you're stuck in a situation where they're treating you unjustly, still submit. And you may suffer, but Jesus suffered. And the way that he could do it, you see, is that he trusted his soul to the one who judges justly. He didn't have to take revenge. So, so don't, don't get deterred by that at all. Christian women, you may be, where, may be married to unbelieving husbands. Don't harass them. Quietly live. Quietly live a life of faith, perhaps. You win them without a word. Husbands, honor your wives. Uh, God has put them in a place of submission to be a weaker vessel in that sense. And so, understand that. Don't take advantage. Love them well in an understanding kind of way. In fact, you might even suffer for doing that which is good. When you find yourself in that situation, when you find yourself suffering for that which is good, continue to hope in the Lord because that hope will be manifested and people will see it. And when they see it, they'll ask you about the hope that you have because it's astounding. They can't even believe you can have any hope at all while they're persecuting you. And then you get to tell them about your hope about your faith. You may suffer, but realize if you're doing that, you're being blessed. I know that's counterintuitive. I know you think that couldn't be really if I'm suffering like this and being persecuted, how I could be blessed. But no, you're the blessed of God at that point, And the spirit of God's blessing will be upon you. Believe it. In the midst of this body, pray. Be hospitable. Forgive. Serve one another. You need each other in the midst of this. When trouble comes, don't separate yourself. When trouble comes, don't leave. When things you don't like happen, don't separate yourself. Continue to welcome. Continue to be hospitable. Continue to forgive. Continue to serve. Because you need each other. That's how he's made it so that we can live this life out together. Elders, he says, don't take advantage of the people, but love them well. You're serving under Jesus. Young men, be 
humble. All of us be humble to one another. Be willing to be weak and vulnerable to each other, to share our weaknesses and to share our lives together. You see, as soon as we think we're uppity, as soon as we think we're better than the next one, all of this falls apart. So don't fall into, into that trap. But here's the grace of God to you. Be humble. Humble yourselves before each other. A day will come when God will exalt you together. So trust Him in that. I know life is troublesome. So cast your cares upon Him. Because He really does care for you. I know it may seem like you're the only one going through what you're going through. But, but brothers and sisters throughout all the world are going through what you're going through. Understand that. Continue to endure. Because you know a day will come and it will be just at the right time. Just I know you want it right now. But it will be just at the right time when God will restore you, confirm, strengthen you, establish you. That, you see, is the grace of God. We mustn't ever waver from it. As we come now to pray, I'll lead us and then at the end we'll pray together this prayer that Jesus taught us because you see, we really are in this together. Let me pray. Father in heaven, even as we hear this word of grace, <clears throat> we struggle because we, because we struggle, quite frankly. I mean, we know this, we've been trusting and yet still life can be difficult in our lives and we think, well, shouldn't it be easier? Shouldn't, shouldn't I be over this? Shouldn't it be done? And I suspect uh, our dear brother Paul felt the same when the thorn in the flesh didn't go away and you kept saying your grace is sufficient. And he said, well, doesn't that mean it's going to go away? And then he realized it doesn't mean it's going to go away. It means it's going to be here. But God will strengthen me in the midst of it and strengthen me even by it because my pride won't get the best of me. God, I pray for me, for us, that we would be able to understand life that way, that even though trials come and difficulties exist and fears happen and anxieties are part of our existence, that, God, I pray that I will know you and trust you in the midst of all of that. To listen to your word and allow it to inform my life. Not the words of other people, not the words of my own mind, but the very word of grace. And this word would come and give strength and give power to sustain I pray, God, that you would do that work in my life and the life of others as well. We pray particularly for the Keeney family, for little Genevieve, who, again, in her very, very early life, uh, has another medical procedure. And so, God, we pray that you would be with Doug and Amanda and be with this little one to heal the strength and to bring grace, power in the midst of their weakness, uh, to walk it through. Brothers, Father, who face illness and disease, and whether it be physical or emotional, that you would be with them as well to bring strength. For our dear friend Dave Upchurch, as he shares this time with his mom, 
in Phoenix as uh, we pray for her that you would help her in these um, latter days, years of her life. And be with Dave to give him strength, to give him grace, for compassion and care for his mom. Father, for all of us as we face the difficulties of life. And I do pray for us as a church, God, that we would never stray from this word of grace, that, in fact, we would cling to it with all of our might. And, Father, when people who know us and know our weakness would see our hope and strength, they would ask, how is it someone like you can continue in the midst of this? And then we could share with them that which is true of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we're in this together as a company of your people living out life here in this community. And so I pray that you would enable to live together and even pray together well as we pray this prayer that Jesus taught us together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen.